Good morning, church. Happy 4th of July, Independence Day. Um, some of you are watching this on the 4th of July. Some of you are probably listening to this or watching it later. Maybe most of you. Uh, probably many of you are traveling and celebrating. Have a great day, hopefully. Um, listen, a couple things for us as a church as we move forward. One, I want to encourage us as a church, keep praying. Keep praying for uh, this community, where we're at. We're in this in-between time. A lot of things are happening. A lot of wheels are turning. A lot of uh, possibilities are on the horizon. So I want you to continue to pray as a house church, continue to pray throughout the week as an individual, as a family, um, and keep giving. Um, I, it, some of you know this, obviously, but summers are usually a, a time when people kind of drop off on their giving. And and we are kind of set up for more of like a consistent thing. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't uh, been giving, jump in. Um, you can do so online. Um, you can mail a check. You can do all that kind of stuff. But please just be a part of it as we head forward as a church. We have a lot of decisions to make. And some of those are going to based, be based off of what our, our current giving is all about. So um, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. And then I want, also want to make sure you know that in the next few weeks, we're getting together twice as a church. We're getting together this week, July 8th, on Thursday night. We are going to be at Majestic View Park, um, and we want you to come. Uh, but we need to know if you're coming because we're trying to provide all the drinks and all the, the actual barbecue meat. So uh, let us know you're coming. There's a way to do that on our website. You've probably been emailed that already. Um, but let us know and then come bring chairs, bring, uh, you know, lawn games, sports stuff, uh, bring your kids, bring your neighbors and friends, whatever. Uh, we're just going to hang out. We're just going to get to know. We're just going to see each other. We're going to catch up. We're going to eat well and watch a beautiful sunset. So Majestic View Park, July 8th, 6 p.m. Also, July 18th. We're gathering Sunday morning as a whole church again at the picnic shelter at Fellowship Covenant Church. Um, come, bring your bring your shade, bring your chairs if you want. We're gonna have some chairs underneath the picnic shelter if you wanna just uh, make it easy. Um, but please come, there'll be stuff for kids. We just can't wait to be with you again um, and to worship together again. So let me pray as we get started. Mark chapter nine, verse 14, God, we just, come before you on this Independence Day. Uh, such a great celebration as we think about history, but ultimately, God, we also want to think about our independence. That there's something that you came to this world to do, and that was to free us from the power of our own sin and from the culture of death. And we need to be reminded of that. And this is a great day to be reminded of that. That ultimately we're thankful for this nation's independence, but far greater are we thankful for our independence. And would you remind us of that? Would you remind us, those of us who have been baptized, would you remind us of our baptism, uh, of, of dying to ourselves and raising to new life? Would you remind us today? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, let's get started. Mark chapter 9. Now, you hear me talk about context all the time. And, and, and you, get, you hear me get frustrated when verses are taking 
taken out of context. Um, this is not one of those passages, but this is one of those passages where I flip the mirror. In the sense of this, because I, I just want you to know kind of where I'm coming from today. Where I'm coming from today, it, I guess you could say it's my context. That when I read this passage, when I've been wrestling with this passage over the last couple of weeks, many of you know the last couple of weeks have been difficult. You've experienced this difficulty. You, you've seen the tragedy in Old Town. You witnessed this apartment thing in, in Miami. You've witnessed um, this, the things going on in your own life that are, are really difficult and hard. So our context is... Uh, pain and tragedy and death and disease and divorce, um, worrying about our children, health, chronic pain in our lives that can, doesn't go away. That's our context. And so we don't read scripture in a vacuum, meaning we don't we bring to the text things that we're experiencing to our our actual reality, our our personal feelings, our actual experiences, and we bring those to the text. And today, I'd be honest with you, I'm bringing a lot of that to this text. I'm just, I'm tired. Um, I'm, it's been a hard couple weeks. And so a lot of times what happens is, is when we read these stories, we, uh, we see Jesus as a nice guy. Like, oh, Jesus is, um, he's partaking in random acts of kindness and he's healing people again. And isn't that great? And we think of Jesus as God and we think of Jesus as nice. But it's critical that we read this story, not only within the context of Mark, but also in the context of the Ark of Scripture. Because there's so much here that has to do with what God is desiring to do and at the same time there's so much here that has so much of the real life stuff that you and I struggle with so let's dive in verse 14 it says when they came to the other disciples they saw a large crowd around them okay quick background Jesus is coming down the mountain with Peter James and John Peter James and John had just witnessed what the the scripture calls transfiguration meaning that Jesus uh, shone like a bright white, like something brighter than anything that could ever be bleached. They saw Moses. They saw Elijah. It was this mountaintop worship experience. Okay? Peter didn't want it to end. He wanted to keep this thing rolling. So he decided, he's like, hey, let's stay here. Let's figure this out. But the valley was calling, like the way towards Jerusalem, the way to the cross, and Jesus' mind was calling. And so it says, when they, and that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the other disciples who did not, you know, they weren't on the mountain with them. They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. And a man in the crowd said, teacher, I brought you my son. Now, stop right there. Um, it's kind of a weird statement because Jesus wasn't there. But the man brought his son to Jesus. And so what do we make of this? Well, they're expecting Jesus because his disciples are there. And ultimately, what we've learned is 
the disciples were really doing the same things and were, were tasked with doing the same things that Jesus was doing. And so there was this expectation that where the disciples were, that's where Jesus would be, which is interesting. And he goes on, he says, my, my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Jesus responds, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, let's use the story of Israel as the backdrop here. Because this is in context, okay? The context of Mark, the context of all of Scripture. In all of Scripture, the story of Israel is God calls Israel, okay, to be a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, here's what that means. They were meant to be a blessing to the nations. God blessed Abraham and said, through you, I'm going to bless all people, through your offspring. And, and so God loved all the nations, okay? He made Israel his special possession, but for the purpose of blessing all the nations that he loved, okay? So Israel's supposed to be a conduit by which God would bless other nations, to call all these other nations back to him. Now, Israel consistently failed. Over and over again, Israel failed. They failed to live up to the designs that God had for them as a servant nation. Over and over and over. And so, I mean, here, take a look at this. Numbers 14, 11, it says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they ref refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? So there's just this kind of lament by God that says, these, these are the people that are supposed to believe in me. These are the people that are supposed to treat me um, well, and they are not doing so. They are not living up to this. So Jesus's question here kind of echoes that lament in Numbers 14. And so in the Old Testament, you got to understand, unbelief, okay, and unfaithful behavior are one in the same thing. They're not separated. Meaning, in the Old Testament, the understanding was, if you believed in God and you trusted in God, then your behavior would match that. Otherwise, it was unbelief. See where I'm getting at? And, and, and as us as American Christians, we're really good at separating those. I believe in God. I trust God. I believe in God. But our lives don't match that. In Old Testament uh, language, that's um, incongruent. That doesn't work. And so if your behavior doesn't match what you say you believe, then ultimately you don't believe. And so this is what Jesus is stumbling into as he's walking into this conversation. He's stumbling into this idea that um, he's frustrated. He's frustrated with the disciples because the disciples are meant to be Okay, his ambassadors to do what he was doing, preach the gospel, cast out demons, heal the sick. This boy's sick. And he's possessed. They can't do it. Something's wrong here. 
They failed to become the people, okay? And this is the people of Israel that embodied faith in God by responding faithfully to God's commands and his commission. And so Jesus is echoing that frustration here with the disciples. And the issue right here with the disciples is Jesus' servants, Jesus' disciples, trying, not proving to be faithful. They're not, they're not faithfully doing the things that they believe. And remember, a few uh, chapters ago, Jesus talked about being beware of the, the yeast of the Pharisees. We talked about that a bit, but this is a little bit, this is, in a sense, the disciples are becoming like the Pharisees. I mean, think about it. The Pharisees are standing around, um, not doing anything to heal. They're priests. They're priests of Israel. And if they take the Torah seriously, they, they could be involved here. But they have, have stepped away from that, and they are, they are literally playing a religious game. And, and in many ways, the disciples are, are, are really just kind of into the formulaic at this point in the religious experience. Because I, I, th I think they kind of settled into maybe an incantation or a, a simple phrase to try to drive out an evil spirit. But, but look at this, verse 20. So they brought him... When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. Notice how it gets worse before it gets better. You know, a lot of times in life when we bring things to Jesus, when we, uh, when we try to uh, get Jesus involved finally, things sometimes get worse before they get better. He fell to the ground, he rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So here's the deal. So the father's faith, okay, has been a little shaken. Who has it been shaken by? The disciples. The disciples' inability to do what Jesus has called them to do has shaken the faith of this man. And here's the thing. There are a lot of people who have had their faith shaken by disciples. And this is an ongoing theme in our lives. Remember, the disciples just a few chapters ago were tasked with preaching, healing, and casting out demons. And we've got to take this part seriously. Because people are looking to us to step in. And many of us are unwilling to do so. And we need to wrestle with that. And it says this in verse 23, if you can, said Jesus. So Jesus is asking this guy, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, and this is one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And I love this. And I love this because it's honest 
It's vulnerable. It's real. It's like this idea of he believes, but he doubts. He's there, but he's not. He's, he's wrestling at that moment, and he's just open about it. And so we're going to talk about this more on, in a minute, but I love how this, the characters in the book of Mark, like Mark brings forward people who are outsiders. The Syrophoenician woman, the demon-possessed guy out of Mark 4. The, um, the, do you remember the Roman centurion guy, Jairus, and his daughter? And Mark brings these people, and this guy right here, Mark brings these people forward as people that are more closely in tune with who God is. In contrast to the religious and even the disciples who still don't get it. Like there's something about this guy as he shows up, he, his plea is, a, is kind of like a, it's a way of completely putting himself, right, in Jesus's hands. And he's recognizing at the same time his own limitations and his doubts. And I just love it. I just love his posture. It says this in verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Actually, the Greek here says Jesus raised him up and he was resurrected. And it's similar to the story of the girl. He, he raised her by the hand. And, and it says this in verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only uh, this, this kind can come out only by prayer. So what's interesting here is there's always these indoor conversations. It's always these in indoor conversations that are like uh, Jesus and the disciples where it, like it's, t you know, things are totally revealed. But I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at this story from three different, you know, facets, if I will, if you will let me, if whatever that means. First one is this. There are real spiritual forces that are, war, are at war with the kingdom of God. And they're at war with the kingdom of God advancing. And they've been at war with the kingdom of God advancing from the beginning. And that's part of the story arc of Scripture. And in a very, what I would call our culture today a spiritual but not religious kind of culture, meaning people will tell me all the time, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Um, spirituality, I just want you to realize this. Some of you might have a frustration with what I'm about to say. Spirituality is not a sham. Okay? I want you to hear that. Some of it is legitimate. Well, Ryan, what are you saying? Are you saying that that things are that people are actually believing in things that are actually real? Yes. Yes. Many of you who grew up in the Christian um, 80s and 90s 
um, and you took a whole bunch of apologetics classes, you were taught to believe that uh, other religions are, are not real. And what I'm telling you today is that people who believe in other religions, who follow other gods, actually have a very spiritual connection to those gods. And they do so because what the scripture says is that there are other spiritual forces at work in this world. Other spirits that grab a hold of the hearts of human beings. And they are real, they are tangible experiences. And, and when, so when someone tells me that they're spiritual but they're not religious, I ask them what spirit. Because here's the thing, as our culture actually opens up to the spiritual, what we are going to see is more and more of the demonic. And many of us, many of you Christians, are unwilling to see the world of Scripture in our present modern context. In some ways, the, the culture of modernism has infiltrated your mind and heart so much that you think that the only spiritual being that exists is God and everything else is a myth. And I'm here to tell you, that may not be true. And we need to wrestle with that. And some of you are going to be emailing me, and it, we'll probably talk about this more, but we did a series a few years ago talking about this, um, and, and if you want to revisit that. The second part I want to look at in, in this story is that let's talk about faith and doubt a bit. And I, I got to tell you, so many people are sitting with and, and have been a little bit more honest during this last year, which has been great, about their faith and their doubt. And the things in their faith that they're, they're, they're taking apart and looking at and wondering if this needs to go or if it stays. And that's what we call deconstruction. Um, let's talk a little bit about what faith is not, just to, as a reminder. Faith is not the complete absence of intellectual doubt. Okay, that's, that's not what faith is. Faith, when healthy, allows doubt to exist allows doubt to hang out in the room and have a conversation. That's what that's real faith is. Faith is also not having an answer for every hardship and tragedy that comes along in this life. Life, it's somewhere in your economy, if you feel like you have to have an answer for why a guy assassinated a police officer in Arvada, and you feel like your faith has to have that answer, uh, that's not faith. It doesn't have, you don't have to have an answer for everything that's bad that happens in this world. See, holding a posture of faith seeking understanding is really important. Um, the posture receives, in a sense, we sit and we receive the biblical testimony about ourselves and about our world and about God. And it, it, it works to uh, make sense of what things are currently confusing. And this is why community is so important. It's, it's, it's so impossible to do this by ourselves. This is why we need each other. This is why we need to have honest conversations about the things that are frustrating for us. This is why we need to unpack 
like some of the ways that we've married uh, different things in our world with our faith. So some of us have married the American dream with following Jesus or, or American politics with following Jesus um, or consumerism with following Jesus. And, we've, and we need to have honest conversations with each other. Not uh, how to keep things comfortable and secure conversations. But these require us to have honesty with each other, honesty with God. And so that's what real faith is. Faith is not the opposite of assessing evidence, okay? Meaning faith does not mean you, you take critical thinking and you leave it out of the room. That's not faith. Faith involves the conviction of what Scripture says about the identity of Jesus and the rea reality of the kingdom of God and, 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 and that kind of conviction that it's true. And it entails completely reordering our lives, okay, around this reality, meaning this. Faith is just not an intellectual activity. It's not an intellectual reality. It's much more than an intellectual activity. For faith to be faith, okay, there has to be volition behind it. So think about the father in the story. The father brings his son. It's like a volitional dimension. He, he stands before Jesus and he says, I do have faith. That's this volitional expression of trusting Jesus out loud with our mouths. Uh, I inwardly own, he inwardly owns the reality and confesses it publicly, but he also shares his doubts. He also admits he has unbelief too. And so it's not just an intellectual activity. It's a volitional uh, dimension of his life, but it's also an active part of his life because he brings his son. He brings his son to Jesus. And, and it's this idea for us, for you and I, this, this allegiance piece to Jesus. Okay? Allegiance, a loyalty to King Jesus, and, and a loyalty that reconfigures, okay, reshuffles, reorders our lives in a way that's wrapped around the kingdom and its purposes. That's what faith is. And many of us have camped in the intellectual camp of faith for a long time. And we have, based on our American um, way of doing life, created a life of intellectual belief in Jesus without volitional and active walking out of our lives with Jesus. And that's just honestly where many of you and, and many of us are. Final part of this I want to look at. If, as if those two first pieces weren't enough to chew on, the final part I want to look at is, let's talk about our desperation for God to act. For many years, the father in this story has agonized over the condition of his son. Jesus' disciples are no help at all and have actually been a cruel disappointment to this guy. And so his situation has left him in this difficult place of living with God's promises while at the same time also inhabiting this world of suffering, where things do not work out the way they're supposed to. Does that sound familiar to anybody listening to this? 
On the one hand, we are told in scripture of God's promises, God's faithfulness, that God is going to show up, that God is going to act, that God is going to restore, that God is going to make all things new, that God has come to seek and save the lost, that God is going to recreate this creation, resurrect us, wipe away every tear. And yet at the same time, we live in such a mess. We're like the father in this story. And you guys understand, this is all throughout scripture. Nobody sits down, um, you know, to read the Bible and go, man, I could just go for a dose of the prophets. But the prophets, the prophets are really, really just chocked full of this. I mean, check out uh, Jeremiah 20. Uh, the people of God, the people of Israel are being hauled off to Babylon. Jeremiah had the unfortunate, the worst job ever. Well, maybe Ezekiel. But Jeremiah had one of the worst jobs ever in, in the Bible to tell the people of Israel that they were going to captivity. And everybody hated him for it. And so this is a frank conversation that Jeremiah is having with God. Listen to this. You deceived me. Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. And then there's the prophet Habakkuk. Right at the beginning of his, his work, he says this, to God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So here's the thing. And then you fast forward Mark and Jesus is an example of this himself. He's, he's later in Mark, he's on the cross and the culmination of this unspeakable torture that he experiences and he cries out in an argumentative lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is straight from Jesus's lips. And, and, and later on in Mark's, it talks about how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. This comes, Revelation 6. I mean, there's so much in scripture about this. And then you contrast that with this American Christian niceness. This like plastic veneer, this like upbeat, positive, encouraging, Caleb, you know, thing, um, encouraging cheerfulness as if cheerfulness and niceness proves something about your faith, right? It's like this highly prized disposition and it's like this Christian plasticky fakeness and the examples I've just given you are actually examples of faithful people wrestling, like honestly wrestling with the realities of their world and how those can fit with God who is righteous and a king over all. I believe, help me overcome my unbelief, right? They, they don't try to tamp down their doubts. They don't try to... Uh, tamp down their questions or ignore them. They express them freely and willingly to God. 
And that's what faith is. Faith speaks its doubts, frankly, to God. A number of years ago, you two uh, wrote a song. Bono wrote a song uh, called Wake Up Dead Man. And you can look it up. Um, it's a pretty powerful lyrics. A um, couple lyrics I cannot put on the screen. And um, it's an interesting song. Like when you read it, you, you may get this sense of, hey, man, they're really angry. I don't like this. I don't like them being angry at God. This sounds like they're really mad at God, and I don't really like that. This isn't Christian music. I'm going to turn on Caleb. But what's interesting is Bono was interviewed about that song, and that song was actually written by Bono after Eugene Peterson wrote the message. Now, the message is a translation of Scripture from Eugene Peterson's perspective. It's like a modern day translation of scripture. And it was written out of and because of Psalm 44. And I want you to listen to these four verses out of Psalm 44. Um, and I encourage you, if you want to go read those lyrics, uh, Wake Up Dead Man. But it goes like this. Get up, God. Are you going to sleep all day? Wake up. Don't you care what happens to us? Why do you bury your face in the pillow? Why pretend things are just fine with us? And here we are, flat on our faces, in the dirt, held down with a boot on our necks. Get up and come to our rescue. If you love us so much, help us. Help us. And here's the thing that's interesting. In this interview, Bono kind of reflects on why he wrote this. And I just want to read this quote from Bono, and we're going to close. He says, really, this is the traditions of the Psalms of David, which offer an honest dialogue with God. I always wondered why was David so beloved of God? I think it was probably honesty. Because in a lot of the Psalms, he's really giving out. Uh, he, sa he says, because in a lot of the Psalms, he's really giving out. Where are you when you're needed? Call yourself God. Look, I'm surrounded by my enemies. You got me into this. Get me out of here. It's so direct. I think it is very important that people feel able to address God from whatever state they're in. Whether that's devotion or anger. Both are present here. So this morning, you know, this is probably a little different way I would have preached this sermon um, if my context was different. But my context is my context. In Scripture, faith includes the courage to be honest about our doubts, about the struggle to imagine that God is truly good, and he will redeem his people and the world in the end. And I just want to bring before you that it's good and right to bring these doubts to God in prayer. It's good and right. And so I want to pray together and then set you free to talk about this. God, we believe. But if we're honest, we need you to help us in our unbelief. And this morning, we want, we want you to hear our hurt. And this morning, we want you to hear our fears.
And this morning we want you to hear our doubts and our sadness and the groaning that we have. Jesus, you've called us to be your disciples. To a watching world. God, don't let us stay in an intellectual belief headspace. Show us what it looks like. Yank us out of our, our slumber. Put us in a place to care, to heal. So that this world can see what you're like. And even in the midst of our doubts and our fears, show us the way forward as a church. We pray these things in your name. Amen.